Yeah, where's it coming from? Let's find out. Welcome to Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me are Kendra Mauer and Morgana. And tonight we're welcoming Greg Bishop. Hello, Greg. Hello. Oh, they can't see the camera, so. It's okay. You can wave. It doesn't matter. Everybody's going to be jealous because, you know, they can't see the things that, that we're talking about, but oh, well. Let so, them be jealous. Exactly. Exactly. So one of the, I, I've actually followed your work for many, many years. Um, I think I first was exposed to it in uh, Wake Up Down There, which I bought because I knew the story that the title of that book came from. You're one of the few. I, I'm a weirdo. I can't, I can't help you it. You are. You are. She is. And, and. Uh, That's why we like talking. Yeah, exactly. And so I've been following that. And then I um, followed pretty much everything you wrote on UFO Mystic because I had just had a kid. And so I was sitting a lot because I was nursing this kid who was born early. So that's all that kid wanted to do was that and grow. And so I had to sit. And so I read your all pretty much all of your columns that you wrote there. So I've been following your work for a long time and uh, I'm not a stalker though. I promise. I didn't even hear from you until just recently. So you've been a silent stalker, which is the The, the ones that leap out at, at, you know, with no warning. And I've heard those too. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that I really like that you have come up with is your idea of the co-creation theory um, for paranormal phenomena. I think you, did you originally formulate it for UFOs? And yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, out. it's still, it's still mainly that because it's mostly applicable to UFO stuff, I think. Well, not, could you, not, go ahead. Go ahead. It's, it's, um, I think it's more applicable, applicable because the, what is seen is less determinant than, an animal or a ghost or whatever you want to call it. Um, we have an idea about what an animal or a ghost are and these things, whatever they things are, they manifest as animals and ghosts and spirits and hauntings and all that. But UFOs are, a, they're, while they're very similar to those things, they're in a completely different category. And people, I think that the, the theory applies or hypothesis, whatever it is, it's not really testable. So it's not even a hypothesis, but, um, but it, you know, it, it manifests mostly in the UFO thing, and that's where I started it. But, yeah, of course, if you're into these things, it starts applying in other ways, too. And I guess you want me to describe what it is. And, no, it is not totally my idea. I mean, everybody borrows from everybody else. I'm sure I pulled tons out of Keel. 
and I pulled tons out of, you know, Volet, and I pulled tons out of people like Greg Little, and um, and though it's unpopular to say, even stuff from um, Rebirth of Pan. Um, but you know, just that's just some of the influences. But my idea is that um, the co-creation thing is that when something weird happens, we are a lot more involved in creating that experience as we remember it and as we experience it than we want to admit. Um, and people have this idea that our brains are like video and audio recording devices, and they are not. They're not at all. They're, they're, they're influenced by, you know, the very first, like you got a fight or flight response. So there's stuff going in your brain there going, oh my God, what's going on? You know, and your brain's trying furiously trying to stuff whatever it is into a category. And when it decides on that category, whatever it might be, everything starts going into that category. And then you talk about it later and you tell your friends about it. And a UFO investigator comes and each time one of these things happen, your memories are being consolidated into something that was not the, I think, further away from the original experience. And there's no way to really tell what that original experience was because it's being recorded by an inaccurate device, us, you know? And we have to acknowledge that. We can't say, well, the witness, you know, it's like, well, the witness sees what they remember and what they talk about and what their culture tells them to, to say and see and all that. And they're, um, and like I said, the UFO investigator and their friends and their their psychology and their culture and their background and the movies they've seen and the books they've read. All these things are affecting something that your brain is going, what was that? Like you see a car go by, okay, a car went by. But if you see a strange light that comes up close to you and something apparently gets out of it, that's not something that happens every day. So you're, you've got you've got to categorize it in some way. That's how our brains work. But... So my idea is that we have to figure out how the instrument uh, picks up what is experienced. Otherwise, we have no idea what that is. We, we only talk about it in our own language and metaphors, not the thing in itself. That, excuse me. That kind of reminds me of when psychologists ask children to draw pictures of their home life, kids that are going through trauma, and they will exaggerate features of people. And it oftentimes it's the picture is of a match is matching an emotional response that that child is having. And I feel mm -hmm. that we kind of do the same thing. We're, we're kids looking at something we don't understand and our brain custom fits that to what we're experiencing versus what we're seeing versus what we're perceiving. It all kinds of comes together in this image. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, of people that write it, write about and do UFO shows and all that. It's like the witness saw this. It's like, that's what the witness said they saw. Yeah. If we were standing there with them, I don't know what I would have seen. I've got this beautiful painting by uh, Henry Osawa Tanner from 1903 or something. And it's the Annunciation, the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the subject that's been painted a gazillion times, tons in the Italian Renaissance. In fact, my favorite painting probably is the Annunciation by Botticelli, but his treatment was is this woman in the, and he went to the pal, he went to Palestine. A, a, a patron sent him there. Um, he was African American. He he was in the United States and he just he couldn't get anywhere because of the racism. He said screw this and he went to Paris, and then he stayed there because he's like okay I'm not having that problem here so I'm just going to stay here. And he got the he got the Medal Legion of Honor and everything. And he was like yeah it's like that Josephine Baker. It's like screw the U.S. I'm having fun here. So. Yeah. Um, 
he went to Palestine. He uh, studied the, you know, the people and, you know, the, the locations and all that. He came back and he painted this painting. I mean, it's on my wall over here. Um, and it, I got to show it to you, even yeah. though people on this. Uh, let me pull it off the wall. Ugh. There it is. Mm -hmm. I love that. Nice. So there is a woman who's supposedly married, but she's not, you know, she doesn't have all the gilt gold around her. She doesn't have a big halo mm -hmm. or anything. And she's not looking at an angel. She's looking at a shaft of golden light. All it is is just a, some yep. light. So I love that painting because I have this idea that if any of us were standing there, that's probably what we would have seen. But from her point of view, it's the angel Gabriel telling her that she's going to have Jesus and she's going to be pregnant and the Immaculate Conception and all that. But, you know, to my mind, it's kind of like the Fatima miracle. It's like people standing real close to it saw, you know, Our Lady of whatever it is, and she gave them messages and all that. People standing, you know, a couple hundred yards away see a light. People standing a mile or two away see this thing that looks like the sun coming down. So I see total parallels here, and I'm not the first one, to the UFO thing. So, you know, that's just one of the things, and I'm working on a book about this, and that's just one of the things I want to talk about is, you know, that painting and how that, how those perceptions are, um, are encoded in, in our brains, you know, and, and that UFO researchers have to, I think they have to recognize that, that we're not recording things, we are remembering what is useful to us. Yeah, um, or what our past experiences have prepared us for. Yeah. Because that's something I've always considered was the cultural lens and the personal lens. Um, and I think you're right. I think it does primarily start with the UFO phenomena, or at least that's when this started getting talked about as far as I understand it from all the books I've read. Um, and I think that's because the UFO phenomena is the new mythology that's currently growing yeah. and being, being born almost. Um, and I don't know if it's the same thing that's existed since the beginning of time and just we've seen it differently at different times. But for whatever reason right now, we seem to be interpreting it differently than yeah. we have previously. And I'm not sure why necessarily. I think there's a lot to what Keel says where it's a modern myth for a modern age. It's more sciency looking, which is yeah. very technical term, sciency. <laughs> Makes total sense. I think it's a great word. Um, but even the the question of, you know, if you were standing right next to somebody and they were seeing the angel Gabriel, I know there's a lot of recorded fairy lore of, you know, people who would be talking with the fairies and they would be being spied on by somebody and there would be, there'd be, wouldn't be seeing anything. They wouldn't be hearing anything. Yeah. And it's, there's, um, lost my brain. It's That's okay. Come back in a minute. It, it, yeah, there's, there's all kind. when you think of it, interrupt me, but there's, there's so many, um, especially UFO uh, incidents where people recall different things and some people are standing there and they don't even see what's going on. They're like, I don't see anything. And it's, you know, people say, oh, it's the UFO people that are controlling their brains. It's like, no, it isn't. It's just people experiencing something in different ways and trying to put their own subconscious stamp on it to be able. There, there's a, 
uh, uh, evolutionary um, uh, neurologist, I guess, psychologist or, um, uh, from UC Irvine, um, Donald Hoffman. And he's, you know, his idea, I keep quoting the hell out of him and he won't talk to me for some reason, but <laughs> he, uh, I've left notes under his door at UC Irvine. That's how, <laughs> that's how stocky I am. Like speaking of a soft stalker. <laughs> but he says, uh, well, I tried to email him a few times. And then I was lecturing at UC Irvine every semester. And it's like, I know where his office, my friend, my friend that's having me lecture. One of the professors says his office is in social sciences or whatever this or whatever um, psychology or sciences building this, this, room and I go there and it's like, okay, here's his office. His name's on the door. So I just, I would, I slipped two letters under his door <laughs> when he wasn't there. And of course he never answered me, but <laughs> what he says, I mean, what the takeaway from his books, one of them is, um, um, this was his first one. It's called visual intelligence. It's a great book. How we create what we see. And, um, it's it's a very involved book, and I have to read each page a couple of times. Um, but what he, you know, what what his uh, what his main thesis is? I mean, it, he has all these diagrams about how people see things and what you see, and you know, what do you see there, and what comes, what jumps out at you. But his main thesis is: we see things that are useful to us. We see things based on our evolutionary heritage, and That's that things exactly what you just said. I mean, That's it's just where my brain was going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> I will finish my thought, then you go ahead. Okay. That we see what is useful to us, meaning what is going to help us survive. And we remember those things. That he did a computer program that um, and a formula about um, conditions and stressors and, 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 and um, food and all that and how organisms will adapt, survive, and evolve. And then he ran these. He ran these with real world data to make sure that it actually they actually were reflecting what was going on by the da, you know data about different animal populations, etc. And then he ran simulations, and he said the simulations, um, after thousands and thousands of trials of simulations, the animals that survived and and and, and thrived were the ones that saw things that were useful to them, not as they actually were. So I think we have to keep that in mind when we're um, looking at the UFO thing. We're not seeing things as they are. We're seeing things like Aeneas Nin said, as we are. So, yeah. Um, so Aeneas, I, Aeneas. I had been thinking of things that have been evolutionarily useful. And something else that I've noticed about myself personally um, is if I get a scare from something, say a white truck almost runs me over because somebody's driving erratically or hits me. For the next several days, I will be very conscious of every white truck I see. And I will notice them before when before I was not noticing them. Yep. And I think that that's a sort of real-time function of that is yeah you start to notice something this saved your life once start just your brain's going to keep remembering to notice that for a while. Right. And I wonder if once you see one weird thing, because it, people either seem to never see things, see one weird thing and it's done forever, or they see one weird thing and then they see weird stuff the rest of their life. 
And I wonder sometimes if that's not the same sort of sensitization of your brain. Like you see the white truck that almost kills you and then you're going to look sure for it. Is. Um, yeah. Evolutionarily, you're looking for the thing that's going to, you know, threaten your existence. Yeah. Or yeah. the thing you might need to survive. Yeah. Or like, just something that you didn't even know that existed before. And now your brain is like, oh my, you know, yeah. that's, that's some novelty. That might be something that may, may be helpful or harmful to me, right. no matter what it is. So your brain's just kind of like, oh, okay. And okay. then I think it's just like basketball, where some people are good at it and some people aren't. Some people are good at seeing these things and others aren't. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you're good. Um, I was, I was thinking about, um, I like best. I like the basketball analogy. Um, <laughs> thinking about how curious humans are and just, we seem to have an extreme level of curiosity where we encounter a novel thing and if it doesn't blow up and get us and we don't die immediately, we feel the need to endlessly mess with the thing. Yes. Yeah. Because it might come in handy someday. We want to understand it. And if the phenomena, if whatever is at the back of the phenomena is a form of intelligence at all, we must be the most fun playmate because we will not stop messing with it. <laughs> Yeah, I get this idea that Whitley Strieber said, where, um, and it's it's not what he said, but my idea is it can only see us in, in terms of our relationship with it, which yeah. is why it keeps bugging Whitley, you know, and yeah. why it keeps doing whatever it's doing and why we interact with it. And the interaction is the reality of it, not whatever it's coming from or whatever it is. I don't think we have access to that. We don't even have words for it. But the interaction becomes the meaning and our metaphors and our language becomes the meaning and what it is, unfortunately. But, you know, I don't know how to back engineer that. That's why I'm really interested in, you know, how the brain works and how vision works and how psychology works. And, you know, I, I can't show you, but I've got like 10 books on on neurology and, and, and psychology and what the hell else do I have? God, just the, all these books on how you know, how the brain works and how, you know, and it's, it's boring, boring stuff, but most people that are into UFOs don't study that stuff because it's boring and it's boring <laughs> to me too, but it's exciting when I find like a concept, like we've been talking about here that seems applicable and pushes things in a direction that I want to see them go. Like I said, not, not that I'm, you know, original in this thinking at all. I'm just obsessed by it. <laughs> Some people are just more attuned to pushing the boundaries of why. Yeah. And other people accept they see that it happens and that's enough. And they want to know what it is that's happening. Other people want to dissect the why. Yeah. 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 Oh. Um, yeah. Um, it's consciousness. I love having stuff around like art stuff. It makes me yeah. happy. You know, I, yeah. I, I'm not an artist, but my <laughs> only degree is in art history. So that's why I'm interested in this part of the UFO thing and pushing the, the, the you know, kind of the right brain approach to UFO stuff rather than let's get more data because then that'll convince everybody. It's not going to convince anybody. It hasn't convinced anybody yet. Why is it going to do it now? I, you know? I have one of my first blog posts for the blog was nobody's going to believe this yeah. <laughs> essentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, I even have a picture of one of the UFOs I've seen recently by my house and I'm like, this will prove nothing to anyone. No, it's an individual experience and that's what it is. And the only person that can understand a UFO sighting is somebody else that's had a UFO sighting. Yeah, exactly. And that's okay. 
I've oh, seen yeah. people talk and they know what, even though their experiences are completely different, they know what each other's talking about. Yeah. Yes. Well, and they also understand each other on a visceral level because- Yes, that's it. Yeah. Much better way to put it. Yeah. We all react. Yeah. It's so. a, it's a, it's a, it's a reaction that, you know, when I, when I watched my father talk about the UFO that he saw, well, it's a, it was a USO, what that he saw in the Navy, because it was either right below the surface of the water or just hovering above it. Um, he saw it off the deck of his uh, destroyer that he was on. He was on night patrol and uh, night watch. Was that and in the Indian Ocean? Hmm? Indian Ocean by chance? No, it okay. was in the North Atlantic. Okay. Um, and you know, he saw it, he reported it to the deck officer, the deck officer took it to the bridge. They both went to the bridge, you know, and it was this big thing. And when he would talk about it, you know, he would start out with, well, I was, you know, on the deck and I was watching blah, blah. And it, he would be like his normal self. And then when he described it, he got, he'd get quieter and quieter and slower and slower in his speech. And then when it came to the part where they woke the captain up to have him come to the bridge to decide what to do, because the first officer, you know, he, he couldn't change course. He could speed up, he could slow down, but he couldn't change course without the captain's approval. The captain oh. came up. So the captain then changed course. And every time they slowed down, they sped up, they changed course. The light stayed the same exact distance away from them and, oh, and it's interesting sorry he, it just it just bothered him you could tell yeah and he was in his 20s when it happened and you know the first time he told me about it he was in his 40s so it was 20 years before but you could tell he was looking straight back 20 years and then the second time I heard him tell it he was 68 or 70 oh. Wow. And and still, it was the same story. He hadn't yeah. changed it, but that same voice and the way that he looked back was the same way. Yeah. It's almost like you have to reprocess what you've seen each time you you talk about it, because there's no just retelling the story. It's you end up back in that in the soup of the moment where you you're you get a taste of the feelings again. Yeah, because it's it's a weird feeling. Because it is. I mean, I've seen a couple, and they're pretty. Like they're very, very pretty. They're beautiful, really, but they're also really creepy because they don't make sense. Yeah. And your eyes are seeing something that doesn't make sense. And so, like the times I've seen them, I've gone, "Okay, is it a drone? No. Is it this? No." And I try to go through like all the other things, yeah. and then they do something that physics is saying they can't be doing that. Yeah, like suddenly shrinking to a pinpoint and disappearing, and I'm like, <laughs> "What I, was that?" <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then you have a sudden urge to finish that cigarette so fast and just stay inside the rest of the night. Yeah, I, you don't want to look back up, <laughs> and and then yeah. a week later you're out having another cigarette, and you're like, man, I wonder if there's going to be another one. And you start looking up again. Yeah, so it's like you both think it's it, it's fascinating and disturbing at the same time, but disturbing like an Escher painting can be disturbing. 
Yeah, it throws a lot of things into question. So your brain's kind of going, uh, yeah. what do I do with this? Who do I tell about this? How am I going to remember this? Um, you know, <laughs> what does this mean? Does it, you know, does it mean, does it mean anything? Yeah. You know, it's, it's just so many things come up with it. And it's, you know, like I said, I think part of whatever intelligence is behind it, and I think there's some sort of intelligence behind it, but not as we think of intelligence. Um, but, you know, heavy keel uh, borrowing here. Um, <laughs> but uh, that I wrote an essay called UFOs as a Cosmic Arc Project, which I'm sure Barbara read. Um, and my thing was, if you were an artist and you could affect people with your art the way a UFO sighting was, you'd be the most famous artist in the history of history. Yes. You know, and so that's, you know, to me, that was the basis of thinking, well, what's going on? Why don't we do right brain research instead of left brain UFO research? Because people's lives are changed in 30 seconds. That's not done with data. That's done with something that makes you go, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. You know? And why don't we delve into that? I don't even know where to delve into that, but you know, it take it's going to take some researcher that's very well versed in talking to people, that is a social scientist, that is a folklorist, that is you know all these things with a smattering of actual physical sciences. Somebody that's really well balanced in that would probably be the best person to do that. And I can't think, you know, the only thing person I can think of that was that's sort of like that is Valet. Um, yes. You know, Dean Radin's kind of like that too. Yeah, yeah. You know, because he, you know, he plays the violin, and you know, he's uh, he, so he's his left and right brains are pretty well balanced. And I, I if you read Valet's writing, you can tell oh. his left and right brains are very yes. well balanced too. So you know, we need more people like that going out and talking to people, and not writing books about it or putting it on TV or anything like that. Like maybe later writing books about it, but you know. There's people that these people have talked to that you never hear about just because they're getting information from them that's going to be more pure if they just form a relationship with these people, go back and talk to them, and just learn what they can. And then when they can't learn anymore or the person's passed away or they don't mind anymore, you just say, okay, and now now I'm going to talk about what this meant 20, 30 years afterwards. Not, you know, this, is, this, this, this case is going to make my career kind of thing because then yeah. – you know, I, I think an ego is a huge problem, not just, you know, not not just regularly in society, but in ufology, it's a terrible problem. Um, and so when I see, you know, I, of course, you know, you're talking to me and it's wonderful and I'm glad that people listen. But um, my favorite people that are into this are people you almost never hear of, not because you haven't heard of them, because they're kind of quiet. And when you have asked them certain questions some very interesting perspectives come out because they're not doing this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Or going on TV or writing their next book or being on 500 podcasts or whatever. I love those people. And, you know, I'm, I, my friend Richard Saraday who just died, he was one of those people. You know, he died on, on, on New Year's day. But he was, you know, he was very interested in talking to people and finding out what their background was and finding out how something made them feel rather than writing a book about it and making a, making a big deal out of it. He did all these things very quietly. Keel always said that. There are people working quietly in the background. And he keeps repeating that. And I know yes, he did it for a reason. Yes. 
You know, I wish I could have asked him about it, like the three times I talked to him or met with him. But that was one of the things I never asked. Well, maybe I did. I don't know. I got the chance to read some some of my dad's old writing. He died when I was eight. And I got to see um, he did um, communications technology research. Um, He has a few patents, but I got to read one of the one of the things that he said was he never wanted to dedicate his life to being a footnote in a book. He wanted to be a part of the cog of advancement. And I love that. And that kind of, you know, let's be a part of pushing everybody ahead, not just making a name for yourself. Yeah. 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 I think my dad's a lot, a lot, a lot the same way. No, 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 no ego in front of him. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think I wish he had more, but just knowing who he is and what he's done and all that, then, you know, Mm -hmm. it's uh, like, I, I give you, just a really strange example. After 9-11, everybody on this, their street had flags up. And my mom at the dinner table said, she said, uh, his name's Kenneth. Kenneth, do you think we should put a flag up? And he's, he, without looking up from his meal, he said, we'd have nothing to prove. And he just kept eating. And I like, had this huge amount of like, all right, dad, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Like <laughs> he's a veteran. He was in the Korean, well, he was in the Air Force. He didn't have to get shot at, but. You know, he's he knows all this stuff firsthand. He's like, we have nothing to prove. Why why, why do we have to show everybody we're going to wave a flag? I know who I am. I know what I'm doing. I know how I feel. I know our contributions to this this country. I don't need to prove it to anybody. So just leave it. And I thought like that, that, yeah, respect. I thought that was a yeah, res- much respect for him for that. And also yeah. a kind of a valuable lesson. Yeah. You know, so. That's kind of how I feel about the UFO thing. It's like the louder people are, the less I, it's a, it's a truism, but the louder people are, the less I figure they have something interesting to say. What did your dad do in, during the Korean War? He was a meteorologist and he gave weather reports to pilots um, flying into Korea. Oh, sweet. Yeah. And also he was an officer. I said, why did you, you know, why did you go in the air force as an officer? And he said, because I knew there was probably a war coming and I wasn't, and he actually said this, I wasn't about to get my ass shot off in a trench somewhere. <laughs> nice. Air. So he I said, how, how do I get the furthest away from that? Air force yeah. officer. <laughs> my dad did, um, was air force and did electronics, tra- uh, train guides and electronics down at Keesler. That's why oh. I asked. I'm like, Hmm, that would be interesting if they ever cross paths. <laughs> I don't know. They might have. He, yeah. Um, he, uh, yeah, he was, um, when he went in, they, they paid for him to go to MIT and get a degree in meteorology. So he got it. He got a master's yeah. in meteorology with the, from the air force. And then when, on the GI bill, he went and got a doctorate in chemical engineering. So nice. Yeah. So, and, and he invented, he invented, he invented rocket fuels for the, for the space program. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't make a big deal out of it, but I've talked to him about it. I've actually recorded him talking about it, you know, and what it was like. He worked at Aerojet, strangely enough. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then McDonnell Douglas. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in aerospace for many, 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 many years. My mom was insane on cooking. It's too bad she can't do it anymore. So I'm trying to pick up as much from her as I can before she can't tell me anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Write it down. That bolognese I told you about, that's yeah. hers. She made it up. I served nice. it to an Italian guy on a film shoot. He said, this is the best bolognese I've ever had. It's like, yeah, my Japanese Yay. my Japanese mom made it. Made nice. it up. That's her recipe. It's like, oh, my God, this is the best. You know, and then I've changed it, too. I use buffalo meat now instead of beef. And so things yeah. like that. 
bison would be good in it. It is. See, it's really now we're going to talk about food. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have uh, steak and uh, potatoes and and corn on the cob with chili lime and and a uh, and um, new hatch chili uh, New Mexico hatch chili sauce that I'm going to lightly put on the steak after I broil it. Or no, I'm going to put it in a cast iron uh, grill pan. Yeah, that's how I cook them during the winter. Cast iron. Yeah, and the, in the summer I put them out on the grill. Or I've got a smoker. That thing is just like. I love smoked stuff. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I smoked had, salmon in it. And I was like. I had corn dogs and chicken nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I was going to do is make. Um, can we swear on this show? A little bit, but not too much. <laughs> okay. I was going to make shit on a shingle, except I was going to make the nice. most like deluxe version you could with, you know, like white wine sauce or whatever. And, <laughs> and, and you, instead of using chip beef, you sirloin and put it on, you know, this beautiful artisanal sourdough French baguette and just make like the, you know, this, and I was going to call it merde en galet, which is, nice. you know, shingle. Nice. and it sounds so fancy. <laughs> I'm going to go scream into my pillow now. <laughs> Because that sounds really good, and it is absolutely nothing I can eat in there. <laughs> Between kids and food allergies, my diet is corn dogs and chicken nuggets. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I, I got lucky. I'm not allergic to anything, and the only thing I don't like eating is like octopus and squid because it tastes like fishy rubber to me. Yeah, I'm not a fan. I had... I really enjoyed squid, but it gave me an upset stomach. I probably ate too much, and you're seeing a pattern here between, you know, mm -hmm. two pounds of yeah. salmon. Yeah. Yeah. Also, but, um, octopi. I mean, after before, before what was that? The, the octopus friend doc documentary that just came the out. Octopus TV. It makes you never want to eat an octopus again. You're like, oh, the poor octopus. Yeah, they're smart. I, it, prob I, it probably had an art project that was working on, and some fisherman came and grabbed it. And they punch fish out of vengeance. I love that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I read that. Yeah. They're just bored. Just boom. <laughs> Take that fish. And the fish is like, yeah, you asshole. What did I do? <laughs> what did fish, I do? That fish is going to notice everything that looks like an octopus for three years. <laughs> that is right. He is. And for all we know, you know, the octopi are actually behind all of the weird paranormal stuff. They're psychic and doing things. We don't know. Yeah. They can't yeah, punch know. us, so they punch fish. Unless they're really big, I suppose. Yeah. Squid will punch you. Well, they don't punch you. They just grab you and then and uh, try and pull the mask off, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Make yeah, you wish so what, the, 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 the Humboldt squid do the that. The Humboldt squid will try and eat you. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've watched those documentaries. Yeah. They, just, I, they, they look like aliens. They do. They do. Which is why I'm like, well, you know, it could be. Well, there, there are alien forms of life that live on this planet that have a completely different idea about things than we do. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't, well, squid, I'm not so sure. I think they're kind of more instinctual. Octopus, I, I think, are, they, they have reason. And, you know. Cuttlefish, too, are supposed yeah. to be quite bright. Ah. Um, yeah, I think they, I've heard they that speak too. in color. Yeah, They've been discovering mm -hmm. that it's not just their color changing for simple concepts. They're like doing really complex things, mm. um, like hypnotizing fish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
best New Mexico food I ever had was at a funeral. That's not surprising. Funeral food is always good. Yeah. It was in northern New Mexico, which is my favorite place to eat any. My favorite type of food in the world is New Mexican food and specifically northern New Mexico. And do you know who Gabe Valdez was, the cattle mutilation highway patrol guy? Yeah. He was with the, the state highway patrol, and he was one of the first persons that did the cattle mutilation stuff. I interviewed him a lot for Project Beta. His family became very nice to me and friendly, and when i visit them, we'd go out and eat. And then uh, he died suddenly at 64, 8 or 9 or something like that in his sleep. And I went to his funeral, and I went all the way up to where he grew up, where he was buried in Ajo, New Mexico, which is halfway between Albuquerque and Dulce, actually. And he was buried in this little church cemetery out in the middle of nowhere in this tiny little village. And then we went over to the um, community room, which was like this old church room or something with wooden floors and benches. And everybody from the area brought food that they made. And it was just on paper plates with plastic utensils and, you know, and paper napkins and stuff, you know, just that they got at the, at the 99 cent store or whatever at the, you know, Western, what's it called? Western family store or whatever. And it was the best New Mexican food. I, I was crying. It was so good. Yeah. So, yeah, I was sorry to see, not have Gabe around anymore, but his family was wonderful to me. And that food was just like mind blowing. <laughs> I stole some of it and took it with me back to my hotel in Albuquerque. <laughs> I would have so... taken that as a, as a compliment. Yeah. Well, they were piling it on my plate. And I yeah, was... yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You, know, you just went in a line. They'd give you stuff. They'd say, yep. you want more? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. The paper plate is, is yeah. bending. You yeah. Know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was, that was, you know, you know, thanks so much, Gabe. I'm sorry that you, you passed away, but God, the food. Holy crap. <laughs> That is fantastic. Speaking of, of cattle mutilations, that's Morgana's. I was trying so hard not to like meld through the camera and just be like, <laughs> talk to me about this, please. Yeah, uh-huh. she's she's doing research on that. And that's that's one of her focuses. You should have Chris O'Brien on. Have you done that yet? No. Um, I'm playing catch up with it still because oh, okay. I stumbled across partway through 2019. Yeah, that's when you started. When stuff started kicking off. And mom and I had been noticing a general upkick in weirdness. She bounced me a couple of articles about... It's the ones in Oregon, wasn't it? Yeah, the ones in Oregon that were starting to crop up. And I had just watched The Devil You Know, which is about C8. I'm born and raised in Charleston, West Virginia. So I remember when that lawsuit was going on. And one of the first things that brought that down was the farmer. And he was describing how his cattle were dying and how there were weird changes happening, how they were being born with messed up eyes and their teeth would turn black. And I had a sudden crazy thought, which was what if some cattle mutilations are in fact random testing being done because of chemical or biological or weapons test spills? That's kind of what Gabe thought. And it's scientists trying to... F- sort of. Yeah, or something to that effect. Because... Yeah, monitoring. Yeah, could monitoring. Because yeah. I then 
was poking around on the internet and I stumbled across the downwinders map. Yes. And then I... That's something Chris will talk to you about. And then I started going, okay, and reading the lists of where... I, I'm pretty deep in this rabbit hole at this point, honestly. Probably not as deep as anywhere near as halfway of the rabbit hole goes. Like, I'm probably at the quarter mark <laughs> of depth. But once I started reading a couple books, and I was like, okay, why is it always one ear and it's not always the ear facing up? And I'm like, lymph nodes. And then this has led to me staring at anatomical labelings of cows and also yeah. maps. And trying to correlate super fun sites as well. Yeah. Yeah. Chris found out that almost, and, and David Perkins, who you should also have on because he's like Chris's like mentor teacher. Um, I, if you want, I've got two shows with him called Cattle Mutilations and Gaia, I think was one of them. I can't remember what the other one was. But he, they both found out that a lot of, most of, if not all, cattle mutilation spates or, you know, incidents happen downstream from nuclear sites. Yeah, yep. I saw that they were clustering around nuclear yep. sites. Um, so, and I don't space. know if, yeah, if correlation is causation or not. I don't either. It's, it's an interesting, you know, and Chris would say the same thing. He goes, look, we found this out. We don't know if it's actually a, a causation thing, but it does correlate quite closely. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, I started noticing that and I'm reading Stalking the Herd. Um, and that I was like, somebody else thinks this. I think I wrote the intro to that. Or you one did. Because <laughs> I begged Chris. I said, can I write the intro? Can you I write did. the intro? Can you I write did. the intro? And he and said, I've already got one, but you can write another one. I said, yes. Yeah, mom, mom <laughs> sent me that on my Kindle. And I was like, this looks fascinating. And then I'm like deep through that. And now me and the internet are off in some corner sometimes. And I should be doing research for this show. It's fascinating stuff. I mean, it, it, no matter what you think of Linda Howe, she did a lot of in, it, like really important work yeah. in the beginning. Um, yes, she did. Um Chris specifically, um, David Perkins, like I said, um, there was a guy from New Jersey who quit, but I think he's sort of coming back now, Peter Jordan. His stuff, for a while, every letter I got from Peter Jordan was opened. Oh, I think I read that in one of your essays, which is why I wanted to ask you about cattle mutilation, because I pinged on that. One second. Okay. There's a dog. Oh, there's a dog. Yeah, I can, I can say having received when you get your mail and it's all been opened, it's, it's creepy. I had a stalker, so that it's nothing interesting. It was just some guy that got a notion in his head, but yeah, it's weird when you're all your mails open. No, it was only from two people, Carla right. Turner, the, the abduction yeah. researcher and Peter Jordan. Yeah. Their mail was always opened. Yeah. And then Carla started putting, and I put it in the the uh, uh, wake up down there book. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, wake up down there. Yeah. I put a picture, an image of actually one of the envelopes where Carla had actually put a piece of tape over the envelope seal and wrote "sealed by sender" on it. And after that, it stopped. But the thing is, you know, you can open mail without anybody noticing. Right. So oh, somebody yeah. wanted me to notice that the mail was being opened. Yes. Right. So, and then Peter Jordan, we interviewed him, my friend Robert, uh, co-founder of Excluded Middle Magazine. He had a show called um, Out the Rabbit Hole for a while. 
or was it Cartoon Pleroma, I think he called it for a while. Anyway, we had uh, Peter Jordan on, and we had this great talk for like an hour. And we're like, oh, God, we haven't even got through half of this. You want to come on again in a couple of weeks? And he said, yeah, yeah, sure. He called me three days before the next show and said, I can't do the show. I'm not doing this anymore. And he dropped out. And he wouldn't answer my phone calls or the mail or anything anymore. He suddenly got freaked out by something. And I'd, I heard recently he got in touch with somebody, maybe Chris, and he said, guess who got in touch with me? Peter Jordan. I said, huh? I thought he just dropped out, but apparently he's still around and he's sort of interested again. He did a study in the 70s where he hired or got remote viewers and gave them envelopes with pictures of mutilated cattle in them and I guess sites and all that and had them like, you know, just hold the envelopes and they... He said they saw things, and this was in 40 and Times, actually. It was in an issue of 40 and Times. Actually, if you go to Radio Mysterioso, that show with Peter Jordan is actually, if you go way down, you know, like eight years ago, that show with Peter Jordan was recorded, and I posted it online. You can hear it. But the cover of the 40 and Times that that his report was in is, is that, I don't remember what year or what volume or anything, but it's there. So I bet you have it in, in that box. Because she, she has all of my 40 and times. I don't have all your 40 and times. I have like this many of your 40 and times. Oh, then it, that box Chris was so has all of your. Chris has That's all your 40 and times. So That's I need to make him give me that back. Yeah. So he, yeah. he gave these to these remote viewers, and some of them came back with um, images of trucks helicopters that had folding like things so you could push them and put them in a little tiny truck. Yeah, this proves nothing, but yeah, this is no. what he got. Um, and, you know, they had blades that were very quiet. So when they were spinning, you wouldn't hear that whop, 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 whop. Yeah. You know, so he said, and this was, they didn't say, you know, these were sealed envelopes. And they just said, they just wrote down what they, what they, the impressions yeah. they got. And a couple, a few of them got these images. Not all the same, but sort of in the same ballpark. Of General that kind of vicinity. Stuff. Yeah, nobody got, nobody got aliens. No, I, I I don't think it's aliens. I think that they might see UFOs near them. I don't know, but I don't even know if UFOs are aliens. I no, well, good for you. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know what they are, so I don't know what anything is. Really. I personally have always thought that 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 the cattle mutilation thing was most likely to be a government thing that they're using the UFO mythos to kind of cover up what they're messing with. Yeah. And I always figured if they were taking samples from the cattle, it was to test for something toxic or environmental that was, that was deleterious. Yeah. Something that got into the cattle population and would ruin the beef industry and make people sick and something so scandalously horrible. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is, yeah, I don't, because of the way I think, I also question that thing about myself because there's so much weirdness associated with it. Exactly. That, yeah, that probably can't that, that, that can't be like attributed to humans. But a lot of it can't. I mean, it's just like the UFO thing. It's like yeah. some of it and makes I, sense I, if you if you put this theory on it, it makes a lot of sense. But then you got twenty percent of stuff where that, that it doesn't explain at all. And that's kind of how I feel about the cattle mutilation thing. I, it could be being used, but that's not the whole thing. I think the cattle mutilation thing and everything about the phenomenon in general, I don't think it's ever just one thing. 
it no, can't none of this be. stuff is ever mm-hmm. one thing, you know? The like, only thing that's one thing is our impression, psychology, and interaction with it. That's the, yeah. that's the, you know, people say, what do you think connects all these phenomena? I said, people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People's the nexus through which all these things are connected. Yeah. And people's consciousness. Yeah. Which we still don't know what that is, what generates it, what it, where it's from. Is it the brain? Is it partially the brain? Is the brain a receiver? Yeah. What is that? Yeah, we don't I think know. A lot of people are settling. People that are way smarter than me are settling on the uh, not consciousness not located in the physical brain thing. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that, and that's one of the things that I'll I'll read about a lot. And you know, what are you reading? What are you reading right now? Uh, right now, I have a huge stack of books about strange light phenomena. That's what ah. I'm looking at now. Strange. Well, you light should have Massimo phenomena. on because he's very much into that, and that's his thing. Massimo Teodorani. I just wrote it down. Yeah, he's Susan uh, Demeter's uh, husband. She, ah. she moved. She moved to Italy and married him from Toronto. Nice. Yeah. And they're very good friends of mine, and I was going to go visit them in Italy. My wife and I were before she passed away, and also then I was going to go last June, and of course that didn't happen. Yeah. So, um, but they're, they're okay. they, you know, they they basically it's like it's like having knowing people that are left and right brained as a couple. I mean, he's very right brained as well, but because he composes music. But he's an astrophysicist. He has a doctorate in it, and she's a pagan and a witch, and has just written the book about it, which um, which I interviewed her about. But yeah, it's like, in fact, I interviewed them both, and I actually the title of the show was "Science Weds Spirit." <laughs> I like that. I like that. So, but yeah, yeah I'm reading a lot about that. Um, finishing up Josh and Tim's uh, second volume of "Where the Footprints End." Uh, Let's see. I have something about uh, anomalous voice phenomena. You know, people hearing voices that aren't necessarily because they have schizophrenia. And then I have a whole list of stuff that I need to reread. I need to reread Patrick Harper's Daimonic Reality. Which I still haven't read. Go ahead and hit me. <laughs> really? Really? You should I'm, read I'm an that. Idiot. I'm an idiot. I mean, you know, what, what, I've, I've got 500 other books I'm reading, so. Well, no, I understand. I do understand. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying always... to get through volume one of Forbidden Science and just get through them all. I'm only on like page 80 of the first volume. You know, I was so weird about reading those. Um, I wouldn't read them for years because it's somebody's journal. He published it. Why are you being weird about reading somebody's diary if he published it? Yeah. I don't know. It was just a thing. It was a thing that I had. Then I read them all in a row and just tore through them because I was so fascinated with the poetry of his writing. Yeah, it's beautiful, and, the writing. And then the things, the stories he's telling are so many. Because, of course, he talks about the student uprising in Paris and he's talking about his family life, his 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 relationship with Ami Michelle, and how they started talking about UFOs back in the the fifties and sixties, and then the whole story of the history of the UFO phenomena and how it was studied in the United States and the rest of the world. Yeah. So this is all extremely fascinating. So I'm tearing through it at breakneck speed because I'm like, Oh my God. And I'm reading bits of it to, to, 
you know, I'll call Morgana on the phone and read her a bit. You know, I'm reading bits <laughs> to my husband. Everybody's like, you're obsessed and crazy. You know, you know this, don't you? You need to stop. And then I realized you need her. <laughs> and then I realized about halfway through <laughs> all of them that he was leaving these little bits of information that were telling another story that was about the insiders who know more of the little secrety bits of yeah. the UFO phenomena. So I had to go back and reread the whole thing and take notes and yeah. index and then go to these, you know, to the authors that he's writing about and look at their books and take notes. And so then I started turning into, you know, the crazy person with the, the cork board with the, you yeah. know, <laughs> Pins and what everybody's been making fun of me doing with both Mission yeah. 411 and Cattle yeah. Mutilation now. Because yeah. I keep so, saying, I need all the maps. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I really, those those books are really awesome and amazing. And I'm looking forward to the one that's coming out in May. Yeah. How about you, other, uh, Kendra and Morgana? What are you reading? Kendra, you go first. You have three copies of a book that I I do, which is really convenient because I'll read something and I'll put it down and walk away and have no idea where it is. So with three copies, there's always one somewhere <laughs> I've left it. This is kind of my new method. I might have to just keep buying three copies of everything. But <laughs> if I... Three copies if, of what? Yeah, which one did I send you three copies of? It was the ghost one, wasn't it? Phenomena was one of them. Yeah, that's one of them. Can't remember the other. Right now, if I'm honest, I'm reading the the Vinland, Greenland, and Icelandic sagas. Ah, because good. my daughter, had, my eight year old, had to answer a simple question for her history class, right. and of course, it was about the explorers of North America. And I was looking at the options, and I'm like, we're not having any of these. So I went with Leif Erikson and Eric the Red and went down that path. So then, of course, I just dove straight into the sagas. So I'm a little off topic with my reading currently, but that's but okay. Not really. Should be off topic. <laughs> Everything should be off topic. I mean, that should be that's that's a good eclectic thing to do. So, but I'm also I've I'm about halfway through three other different books. But again, I put it down. I lose it. And I move on to another book. So that's kind of my absolutely chaotic method. So yeah, phenomena. Sounds like, sounds like mine. Yeah. Um, I'm rereading uh, Whitley Strieber because the last time I read it, I was 12, 13. And I don't even know why we had it. Maybe. No, I must have been 15. Mm -hmm. But I don't even know why we owned the book. But I just decided to read it. Because it's a bestseller. Because huh? it was a bestseller. <laughs> and it was, yeah. And what's the other one? Oh, Where the Footprints End. Oh, okay. So. Um, okay. I'm reading, I read like six books at once because I. Yeah, I, me too. I like More that. like 10. Yeah. Um, so Quackery, which is a history of terrible cures and medical treatments to things. Perfect. Um, the Children of Ash and Elm, which my friend Chris, our fourth member of the podcast, got me. It's a history of the Viking peoples. And I'm about to start that one, too, because it looked interesting. So, um, 
I am reading Stalking the Herd. I am also reading Where the Footprints End because mom got us each a copy for Christmas. Ah. Um, I'm reading The Thread That Binds the Bones, which is a fantasy novel. Mm -hmm. um, I'm reading Mary Berry's baking book. Perfect. We should all hang out somewhere and just, you know, have a book club. Yes. And I'm reading <laughs> something be fun. else. I, oh, I'm reading Fallout, an American nuclear tragedy. Ah, good. Yeah. So that's the other thing I'm reading. So that, that's so cheerful. You know, you end I, with a cheerful one. It's part of the, <laughs> as, You should have ended with Mary Berry. What am Goodness. I looking at? I think oh, we're wow. looking at a Wow. And I've either finished yeah. or, I mean, there's printed ones here My too. My Kindle was pretty scary. Yeah, oh, too, yeah. too many. Um, I, I got too many. Um, my wife used to say, no more books. Because she was a librarian, so she had books too. And oh, the, God. Books, the books started taking over. Um, yeah. What is it? Wormwood Star, um, a biography oh, yeah. of, of Marjorie Cameron. Yep, that's um, a good one. Good yeah, one. You Can't Win by Jack Black, which is my favorite book of all time. Um William Burroughs' favorite book. Um, <laughs> the Entity Letters uh, about the, um, what was the name of the, uh, I can't remember the name of the uh, group. Anyway, it's by, um, it's by uh, Jim McLennan, and I, I wanted to interview him. Um, uh, La Teoria Sintergia, Sintergica, which I can't really understand by a, um, uh, a Mexican parapsychologist who I'm just starting to uh, read about. Um, a book on the Russian cosmists, um, the men on magic carpets searching for the superhuman sports star, uh, the comedians, a history of American comedy, <laughs> nice. the supernatural by Strieber and Kripal, um, uh, information, in the, yeah, information in the nature of reality, uh, about information theory. Yep. The case against reality, which Chris, is often second. Chris read that the the information. And yes, Chris read that. Yeah, recently he was reading that. It's a headache-inducing book. Yeah, he said it was really fun. Yeah, he's a physicist. That's, oh, okay, of course. This is why. Yeah, that's um, why he at, thinks that's fun. At days close, night in times past. What? How people used to sleep. Hmm. Uh, Heaven Can Wait, uh, the book about uh, purgatory by Di Diana Pasolka. Let's see, Lonely Hearts, which is a biography of Nathaniel West. Um, let's see, The Trickster and the Paranormal, of course. Um, you have my copy of that, don't you, Morgana? Yeah. Robbie's no, it must be in the basement. It's Robbie's either in the basement or you lent it to Chris or it disappeared because it's, named, it's called The Trickster and the Paranormal and you live okay. with people who create a coyote. Yeah, true. True. <laughs> Robbie Graham's book, Silver Screen Saucers, California Jesus about um, California cults by my friend Mike Marinacci. Ooh, that's one I should read. Yeah, yeah. Kendra is uh, saying, nope, nope, nope. That's, nope, nope, that's nope, where nope. crazy was from. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Destruction was my Beatrice. Um, uh, Dada and the, and the uh, unmaking of the 20th century. Just history of early Dadaists. <laughs> Uh, biography of the White Wright Brothers, um, Authors of the Impossible, two books by book. yeah, two books by Jim Tully, who was a basically a hobo and, in the early twentieth century and what it was like. Uh, 
uh, Yellow Kid, Yellow Kid Wile, which was a, he was a, he was in the 19, early teens and 20s of the 20th century. Um, he was a confidence trickster. And it's his book about how he built people out of millions, uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of I dollars. should not think that's fascinating, but I do. It is fascinating. <laughs> Our final invention, artificial intelligence and the end of the human era. Failure is not an option by the guy who was the, um, the, uh, the uh, uh, head, um, the Capcom, the, uh, the, the guy that ran the, uh, uh, the missions for um, a few of the Apollos. Uh, 11, he was, he was the guy that was the head of all the, right. the uh, people for Apollo 11. A book on a book on the Beatles and all their financial dealings, like uh, what they fought over and all that. Um, let's see, uh, biography of Paul McCartney after he left the Beatles called "Man on the Run." Does he <laughs> does he get into his little warfare with Michael Jackson? Uh, it's I'm not sure if that's in that book. I, I okay. think they might have touched on it. How Music Works by David Byrne. Ooh, uh, Dean, Dean Radin's Entangled Minds, uh, Weird Life, which is a good one. The Search for Life that is very, very different from ours, which is basically, you know, what what forms does life take and could it take, um, depending on where it, where it develops and all the weird, weird uh, uh, forms that it takes on this planet. What does that tell us, you know? Anatomy of Addiction. The story of um, Sigmund Freud, William Halstead, and the miracle drug cocaine. My friend, one of my other friends, is actually reading that right now. Yeah, and Southern California, an island in the land, which was a history of Southern California, which I, I live here, and I'm fascinated by the history of it. So that's just a few of the books I'm reading, and just the ones on the Kindle. <laughs> yeah, my house, I we've recently redone um, one of the rooms in the house, so it's now the library. There's still books in weird places. There's a trunk of books, and then there's a book stacked on the trunk, and then there's books on my desk, and then there's a big basket that's filled with books. Yeah, that's, that's my hallway. There's books from the floor to the ceiling all the way up to 10 feet up in the ceiling, and I have to use a ladder to get to them. And then there's my wife's books, the ones that I didn't give to her school, um, um because I just couldn't keep them all. I just kept yeah. all, you know, I kept all the Jung books and the Joseph Campbell books and a few of the other things like books like on voodoo Campbell. and Haitian voodoo and things like that. I kept those. And uh, yeah, the rest went to her school so that people could use that. There was a, yeah. a, a, a charity um, sale so that the students could get the books and use them. Nice. Awesome. Um, and then all the money went to the alumni fund or something like that. Cause that was nonprofit. The school's for profit, but she went right. to Pacifica Graduate Institute, and the school's a for-profit school, but the Alumni Association is nonprofit, so I was able right. to donate the books to them. So That's nice. Yeah. That is good. Yeah, the provost at that university is Peter Rothkowitz, and I realized I'd heard that name before. He wrote an essay called – did he write that essay? Well, he wrote an essay in one of my favorite UFO books, um, Cyberbiological Studies of the UFO Contact. Oh, Cyberbiological Studies of the, oh, what's it called? Of the Contact Experience in UFO. God damn. It's such a, it's the longest UFO. Here it is. <laughs> Cyberbiological Studies of the Imaginal Component in the UFO Contact Experience. That is a long title. Yes. It's like and a summary. 
Yeah, and I knew I'd heard his name before. He's the provost at uh, Pacifica now, Peter Rothkowitz, R-O-J-C-E-W-I-C-Z. And his essay was Signals of Transcendence, the Human UFO Equation. This is a very important book that everybody that's interested in UFOs should read. All righty. I managed to get that whole title written down very quickly. So yes. that, that bodes well for me returning to school at some yeah, point. Yeah, there's great. I mean, <laughs> the vid- beginning of the book has this. Uh-oh, are you still around? Yes, yeah, I'm still I'm here. Still here. Yep. Um, this painting. Which oh, wow. I, it's a fascinating, beautiful painting. It's the first first time I ever saw that painting. It's called The Thought by Micaragula Cirillo Yolonis, 1904. Here it is in color, actually. Nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's very funny that I actually printed this up the other day because I was, when I interviewed uh, Josh and Tim the other day, we were talking about I shine and I glow. <laughs> and the difference between the two. Yeah. And it, that's like, oh, here's some I glow right here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because there's nothing reflecting from that. Yeah. And there's I no just, light source. If you look on the Radio Mysterioso site, at the very top of one of the of, of the right hand column is this painting, actually. Oh, nice! Because yep. I love this painting. I wish I could. I I think I've been doing. I've been ordering paintings um, with the. I shouldn't be doing it, but I've been ordering canvas prints of paintings like that. That the Annunciation one, because I wrote an essay about that, and the other one I recently wrote an essay on, which I love, is a painting by Goya uh, called The Witches. I the, love that. Yeah, the flight yeah. of the witches. I yes. love that painting, and it, you know, it's 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 stunning and fascinating, and it has to do. And the funny thing is, the painting is not, it's not supporting the supernatural. It's actually against the supernatural and against superstition. I don't know if you can yeah. see. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I know which one it is. Yeah. yeah. There we go. Yeah. So. I, I wrote about a four-paragraph essay on this and posted it on Facebook because I'm starting to write essays about paintings with supernatural and non-human themes in them. Oh, okay. That nice. would be cool for you to tell us about because that sounds fascinating. Yeah. And I love hearing about art history and art analysis. The only thing I have a degree in is in art history. I have a bachelor's in art history. A very useful degree, as it turns out, because I went into post-production instead. But... <laughs> I've been interested in it recently because a lot of the people I've had on my show are academics. I had Stephen Finley on talking about the nation of Islam as a UFO religion. I had um, Jeff Kripal on um, talking about what you know he would talk about. Um, this guy, Chris White, we were talking about the history of the fourth dimension and how that, uh, how that has appeared in art and literature throughout the 19th and 20th century. Um, so I thought, well, why don't I use the little bit of art history I have left in my brain and all those those four years of getting that silly bachelor's degree and apply it to some of these subjects. And so the first thing I wrote was about that painting, about um, about Tanner's painting of the, um, of the uh, uh, Annunciation. And the second one I wrote was about this Goya painting. And the third one I, I, I want to write is about... Um, I think the next thing I'm going to do is something like fantastical creatures in, in uh, Japanese woodblock prints. Oh, oh sweet. Yes. That would be amazing. So 
Um, the one I wrote about the Tanner piece, it is short. And if you indulge me, I'll, uh, and you know, if you want to put up the painting somewhere, somewhere yeah. uh, it's like three paragraphs and I want to read it to you just yes. to show you what I'm, what I'm thinking. Um, uh, the Annunciation, 1898 by Henry Osawa Tanner. Um, uh, Tanner, 1859 to 1937, was one of the first African-American artists to gain a reputation as a painter, although he had to move to Paris to be taken seriously outside of the mentorship of his teacher, Thomas Aikens. He arrived in France in 1881, an amazing time for the arts. Like Josephine Baker, finding racism was not a hindrance to his work there, he remained for the rest of his life. He was even awarded the Legion of Honor by the French government in 1923, and he was very proud of that. He like It was one of his most precious things that he um, had got in his life that recognition because of his increasing interest in religious themes in 1896, an art critic and patron paid for Tanner to study in Palestine. He returned to paint his version of the much depicted biblical scene of the Annunciation where Mary is told by the angel Gabriel that she will bear Christ. Unlike past treatments of this theme that Tanner chose to represent the angelic presence as a shaft of golden light. While most critics and historians seem to concentrate on the color palette, the realism of the scene showed, showing an apparently ordinary woman, woman in an extraordinary experience circumstance, the cross-shaped form by the light in the shelf on the upper and the upper on the upper left, it's interesting to speculate why Tanner might have chosen to represent the angel as a blinding light rather than an androgynous humanoid with wings. Um, this depiction resonates well with the history of much extraordinary experience, where witnesses have for centuries reported light phenomena that draws attention and occasionally engages in apparent interaction with the viewer. Uh, spirits, gods, and heavenly messengers have all been described as orbs and shafts of light. It's a, it's a primal method of drawing human attention. Medieval artisans use this fact in creating stained glass windows, and in our present time, television and movie screens speak to the powerful effect that light has on our psyches. That's my short little essay on that painting. I like that. I like that. I really like that. In, in furtherance of this, I actually found this book, which is fascinating to me. Do you know about this one? Oh, that's yes. Cool. I haven't read it yet, but I've read it. I've been seen on my it. list. Vision yeah. And art. By uh, Margaret Livingstone, who has a who heads a um, a laboratory at Harvard, I think, on uh, human perception, and this this book, I mean, it's it's like st stunningly fascinating to me. Because like, um, Morgana actually said earlier, she said the UFOs are so beautiful, and I was thinking, I wonder if there's ever been a UFO that has a bad color scheme. <laughs> I've never seen a tacky UFO. Yeah, are there any tacky UFOs? They're, I, they're really not tacky. Yeah. All the, the colors are complimentary and they're, you know, they're composed properly. Is they're that because UFO people are artists or because that is pleasing to our eye, which yeah. is what this book is about. What is, what, how do you see things what is what is something that pleases your eye and your 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 physiology, your psychology, whatever? Well, what, and then what, what creates going... dopamine and serotonin dump? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Specifically, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Mar Margaret Livingstone. Uh, the, look, look her up. It's uh, yeah. I'll have to read that for sure. Yeah. Every single time we have somebody on, we suddenly have like twenty five more books <laughs> we all have that we all have to read. I feel like we do that to other people too, though. I don't. It's okay. That's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be overloading each other with information. And we're going to read the instruction manual on how to make yeah, like, hot dogs. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, you know, t- if you just read books on UFOs, you're just missing like yeah. it's that's not 75, 80, 90 yeah. percent of what's going on with them. You have to start looking at what what yeah. people see, how they see, why they see, you know, what is the cultural. So that's why I'm writing these art history essays, because I figure that people can describe something in language, but if they draw it or paint it, that's a completely different language that sometimes you cannot describe in language and language is limiting that experience. Um, That's why I loved your idea that you presented at the strange realities conference about handing uh, UFO witnesses, a stack of paper and a bunch of art supplies and not saying and leaving just let them see if they can work it out i actually gave that a a miniature version of that suggestion to uh tim renner i was talking with him not that long ago Mm -hmm. and i said because of what you had said about that i was like he was talking about how he and his friend chad when they go out and they see the weird little lights in the woods They will write down their impressions afterwards and before talking with each other. And then they look at it. And he said, and one of the things that we've noticed is we see it differently, even if we're looking at the same thing. Yeah. And he was like, you know, is it the way that our eyes are structured? Is it that I'm standing at a slight angle? And so if you see it not face on, but edge on, it's different. It's a different shape. He said, what is it? I said, why don't you try drawing it or, you know, having some colored pens or whatever and see if you and Chad can get the idea. You know, maybe Chad is seeing it more solid than you. You're seeing it more amorphous. What, you know, do that. And I I told him it was because of what you had said at Strange Realities. I said, you know, I'd love to have uh, a bunch of art therapists running about with ufo investigators yeah. and and just handing people here here's art journaling supplies yeah exactly write an art journal about it and and then you know and if you need help with the art part that's what the art therapist is for to you know this is how these these media work together or whatever well but, and you all, you also with the research out there currently and the actually the just the the popular discussion now is are things like do you have a running dialogue or do you have a running video in your head? How do you perceive reality? How are you processing the input, the information that, that you're being inundated with? How do you process it? And yeah. it'd be interesting to see how different processes, like I'm a very visual thinker. I would process it differently than someone who was a verbal thinker. Yeah. So we might, be perceiving different things because we actually process things differently. Right. I mean, there's so many questions there. Yeah. Do you see things differently because of a visual thing? Is it how your brain is connected? (sighs) There's just so many things. Is it because of the language that you speak? Yeah. Yeah. Because everything from color to beauty to just oof. like yeah. language that you think in shapes every part of your perception of I'm a language labels. junkie. It, You're it, a what? It, it, I'm a language junkie. I am okay. 
utterly fascinated by languages and the effect of the sounds on the way you perceive things. For instance, the word rain versus the, the word la lluvia. To me, it is just two remarkably different perceptions of the same thing because of the sounds it makes. Yeah. And I often wonder if that affects how people perceive things. The onomatopoeia of, of, of theory of, yeah. <laughs> of language. Yeah. yeah. I, I cut right into Morgana's. Uh... No, you're fine. Um, but, you remember what you were saying? Yes. Sorry, I'm, I'm backtracking. Bad. No, my, my train of thought kept going and then heard Kendra and was like, I'm going to go I'm over so here. sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Uh, Boop, 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 boop. Language doesn't language shapes perception because yeah. language is how you label. Yeah. And like down to color, even. Um, I want to say yeah, my the, red's different than your red. My yeah. And, and it's every, different than somebody saying rojo in in, in, in yes. South America or, or rouge in, in France or whatever. Yes. Rouge. Krasivaya in Russia. Yeah. yeah. I yep. believe blue didn't exist for parts of Asia in the BC era. Like the concept of the color blue. Yeah. Like that's why, or it was ancient Greece. It, yeah. was, that's why it, it was ancient Greece. That's why it was wine dark sea. Mm -hmm. um, which is fascinating to me because blue is one of the most obvious colors in the natural world because of the sky. Yeah. But what if you don't have a proper word for it? What is how does that how does that imprint on your brain? Exactly. Right. Is it just sky colored? Yeah. 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 Um, and so I just I don't know. I I find I remember when I was in middle school, I had been reading a lot of H.P. Lovecraft because I was allowed to read things that you shouldn't hand eleven year olds. Um, and I have yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I for the first time realized that your perception was not what was real. Yeah, and that I had no idea what the real world actually was looked like. Yeah, because I could only see what my eyes were perceiving and translating and giving my brain, and my brain was telling me what I was seeing. Yeah, and I remember how freaked out I got for like a week. <laughs> 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 like I was like trying to figure out a way to like see through perception and I was like you can't do that and you eventually the, I, the world is inside your brain exactly there's no escaping and I being like 11 I was like maybe this is what magic is is people trying to open the door to the real world and not just what we're perceiving maybe this is why people go crazy because they see a different thing yeah. Um, and finally, I told my dad about it. I'm like, Dad, it's freaking me out. And he said, it doesn't matter because you can't see anything except what you can see. So stop worrying. <laughs> Which was very practical. But yeah, also it's a very like, dad thing to say. Yes. But there's a reason I wasn't married to him at the time, you know. It's, because I was like, that doesn't solve me freaking out, though. What if I, I would have pulled crawling out, around? I, I would have pulled out William Blake and, you know, handed you if the doorways to perception were cleaned and clear you could see the truth as it truly is but you know yeah well i don't William you know Blake there's there's no way to practical. clean those doors exactly. no there is it was very practical yeah 
I just was still freaked out. And he was like, okay, stop reading Lovecraft then. That is also practical. You're no, (laughs) there's there's probably not lurking horrors that you just can't see. Probably. (laughs) Okay, 411. (laughs) Her other obsession. There are no horrors except the ones I read about all the time. <laughs> I used to drive a ride home because because you kids, you have it so easy. I, I couldn't pay for my car to get fixed for a long time. So I had to ride to my job that was 15 miles away at near Los Angeles International Airport. And I had to ride home to Topanga Canyon, oh. which is where... Um, Preston Dennett writes about because he grew up in Topanga County. So I had to ride up that road at two in the morning on a bicycle every night, five nights a week. Because I was on swing shift. So I had to ride down there during rush hour. Surprised I didn't get creamed by a car. And I had to ride back during at two in the morning when there was no light. And I would ride up Topanga Canyon in the middle of the night. And I was reading Bud Hopkins at the time. So I was scared out of my mind riding up that canyon. Oh, God. It's like, when am I going to get abducted? It's like, it's going to happen any minute. <laughs> yeah. If I don't oh, look, man. will it not happen? <laughs> I, you know, and it was, I wasn't in a car. I was, I could hear all the animals. Yeah. I could hear, you know, I could hear traffic. I could see the moon. I could, you know, and it was, and, and Topanga is not, it's basically just mountains. It's Chaparral Mountains and, and next to the ocean. You ride up the road and you're just basically in wilderness. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that, I did that, that for one. months. I don't know how I survived it. Until <laughs> <laughs> I got enough money to get my car out of the garage that I owed money on or whatever. Because Oh, no, it was a body shop. Oh. Body shop. I couldn't, I couldn't make the, uh, the, the payment on the, um, on the deductible. So they just kept the car for like five months. Yeah. <laughs> and when I finally had enough money to do I sold a painting or something. At the, not my painting, but a painting, a piece of artwork that I had to get it. But yeah, for months I was just riding my bike up the canyon. Insane. And and there was Bud Hopkins right yep. along with you. Hopkins, Streber, you know David Jacobs, and you know John Mack. I'm reading all this stuff and wondering why I haven't been abducted yet. Because I was just reading the books, and you know right. that was my whole my whole perception at the time. You know, I was in my 20s or whatever, but still, I mean, yeah. To me, I was like a little kid going, oh, there's monsters under the bed again. Right? Yeah, I mean, they're creepy. I, I still, I've, I think I've read Communion three times. And the first yeah. time I read it, I was very early 20s, like 20, 21. And, oh, that was just horrific. I hated it. I hated it, <laughs> but I kept reading it because I wanted to know what happened. Yeah. Um, and I'd always loved his fiction. I'd read all of his horror novels, but it scared me more than his horror novels did. Yeah. And and the whole time I'm just like, ah, you know, I, and then I didn't read it for years and years. I read it again when I moved to Athens, Ohio, which is a bad place to read it um, because it's very, very weird here and spooky, strange things happen, you know, and I'm, I live out in the country in the middle of nowhere in a house that has weird lights in the woods and sometimes in the house. And why yeah. did I choose to read it at that time? I, I don't know, but I did. And it was just, it was horrific. Um, Bud Hopkins stuff bothered me, but not as much because I, I read his uh, transcripts of his uh, 
hypnosis sessions and he clearly asks leading questions, which of course my brain goes, uh, uh, right. That's you're making that's no, you're leading your witness. That's not, you know, so that one didn't scare me as much, but it's still, those stories are nerve wracking. They are. What do you think of Whitley Strieber? Something happened to him. You know what people say, do you believe him or not? I said, to me, that's asking if you believe the Beatles or not, or if, if you believe Mark Rothko or something. It's like, that's not a proper question. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I feel the urge to make him soup and ask if he's doing okay. <laughs> like, I'm not even kidding. Like, I, he's been through a ringer. And I, I, I want to make him soup and pat his hand and ask if he's okay. And like, for a while, he was doing uh, meditations online on 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 YouTube. I, I actually attended some of them. Okay. So he he's pretty much he's okay. Okay, good. <laughs> because he's fine. He's okay with it. You know, it's it's an adventure for him. I've okay. seen him. I've seen him talk a few times. I've actually talked to him privately a few times, and he's fine with it. Okay. You know, it scared the crap out of him, but he's, yeah, he's like, fine I, with it. Okay. That makes me feel a lot better because it's so, some of having a new world is very, got some very creepy parts to it. That, and I'm very yes. sensitive to creepy and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm overly mommy. I'm mom. I guess, it. but. A little. What, what I say is like, how could he go? It's like people get used to bombs dropping on them. If they can do that, Whitley yeah. Strieber can get That's used to whatever happening. Exactly. To him. That is very true. Yeah, and he, also, you know, and get to the point where he's enough of a, you know, of a, of a explorer and a shaman or whatever you want to call it that he can learn from it and realize this is part of a long tradition of, of being, you know, of trial by fire. And, and trial yeah. and, and problems and you know you don't grow I mean his m- model I think is you don't grow by running away from these things yeah. you grow by facing them head on and maybe even teasing them a little bit so they show you what they really are or what you think they really are or whatever you can learn from them and so he's, I think his idea was if this is going to happen to me maybe I can just learn from it I think that's a good way to cope yeah, Trauma which is why which I've... is why it's called communion and not what it was supposed to be called which was some horrid scary title actually and told him why don't you call it communion i think what trauma does is it just alters your normal yeah so you you incorporate that into your sense of normalcy sometimes it takes a little while to to weave it into the fabric of what you understand and to become okay with it but it does eventually become part of your normal yeah like a ufo sighting Mm-hmm. Exactly. That, that that is a traumatic experience mm-hmm. for just about everybody, in, in in a very real sense. I mean, they, they could not be affected that much, but I mean, even Barbara talking about her dad—that was a traumatic experience. When you, know? you have so, something that happens that everybody says is impossible, that yeah. what everything you have experienced up until then tells you is impossible, and yet it's happening right there and then he was surrounded by professionals in the military who he reported it to as he was supposed to yeah and then they didn't know what it was yeah all of the so people, then what you do know, you do with that the radar and sonar operators can see it but it's not showing up as anything that they can identify mm-hmm. so what is that so it's sort of a multi-layer kind of trauma 
It's the trauma mm-hmm. of, I don't know what that is, but my superior officer will know because he's been doing this for so many more years. So I'm just going to go tell him. And you tell him and he looks at it and says, what the hell is that? And then it goes up the line until so you have to wake the captain up. And he was, yeah. you know, as they called him, the old man, you know, he, he had no idea what it was either. So yeah. then what do you do? And yeah, then you get yeah. debriefed at the end of the, you know, tour. And that's what you do. Yeah. So, so yeah, how do you, they, 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 you know, the, the investigators have to deal with this as, tra- of, with tra- as trauma as well. Not, not just, not just somebody saw something weird, yeah. you know, that's why the people should, you know, if you do it, go out and interview a witness, if they're willing, you should, you know, create a relationship with them and yeah. go back and talk to them every once in yeah. a while. Yeah. Think, not only for their, not only because it, you might get some insight, but because they might need that. Yeah, yes. and there are people, and people deserve to be treated like people, yeah. and not just like an interesting tidbit, a yeah. piece of data. The, my one of the UFO of songs, yeah, one of the UFO songs I have. It's an old country song, and the, the in the chorus, he the guy keeps saying it's just imagination, but I saw it just the same, which mm-hmm. is. A really good catchphrase yeah. for a lot of this. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's one of the things I liked about Keel is he would keep going back to his witnesses and talking with them. Mm-hmm. You know, he he did not just leave, you yeah. know. Valet does this too. Exactly. Yeah. I really appreciated that he took Janine, who was a psychologist, with him yeah. when she was alive. Yeah. And uh, a child psychologist at that. So when he had younger witnesses, there she was. And that's, I think that was part of why he got such good information. Yeah. And then there's a whole thing about when people speak to women, they're going to tell you a different story. Uh, Chris told me this. Chris O'Brien, he said, I used to take, you know, Linda Howe taught me a little bit uh, right at the beginning. And he would go out with Rosemary Ellen Guiley and he said, she would talk to people and men especially would tell things to her that they would never tell to a male investigator. So there's a dynamic there that people don't really talk about in that people are going to react differently, especially men to speaking to a male or a female uh, 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 researcher or investigator or whatever. And if they're good at it, like Rosemary was and, and Linda Howe as well, I would think that they're going to get a piece of the puzzle that, just Chris going out there or, or Dave Perkins going out there was not good again. Yeah. I would Hawkins for that matter, you know? So I would imagine men would feel more comfortable being vulnerable. Yes. Towards a woman. Yeah. Depending on how she, you know, if she's good at it, she uses the fact that the the fact that she's going to, um, that they're going to react to her differently to, you know, show some, you know, care and compassion with it that you would yeah. not get from, a, you know, because uh, uh, you're going to pick up on that a lot quicker if you're a, a man describing yeah. this thing that you don't really want to talk about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that I like I I've said I said this online, you know, on Facebook somewhere. It's like there is a subject for a book or a paper or something. Mm-hmm. What are the differences between male and female investigators uh, of the paranormal and how do people react to them? And what different stories do they hear? Yeah. And how do different investigators approach things differently? Yeah. 
you know, there's going to be individualistic approaches, but just for the mere fact of the, you know, difference of male and female psychology, you're mm-hmm. going to get different results from their, just by their presence, maybe not even what they ask, right. but just by their presence and how people are going to open up to them or not or whatever. And that I think is something that hasn't been examined or, or, or pushed um, really and and it should be because it's it's you know I will say things to women, I mean the, the, I will say different things to women than I would say to men, even close friends. Mm-hmm. It's just the way we work. Oh yeah. So, you know that that's a like I said to get some balance in this field, maybe there should be somebody should start paying attention to that aspect as well. Well, you know, Valet even says it in his journals that. He had started taking Janine because he was traveling all over the world and and she should go too. But he noticed that she got information in ways that he did not. And some Mm -hmm. people would talk with her more than they would talk with him. Right. And he was, he's, he's a, he comes across as a very gentlemanly person. And so he is welcomed most places, but he said that he seemed like it was even more welcoming if Janine was with him. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That makes and sense. So he got, he got a little bit more information that way. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I don't I, know. I, Maybe, you know, somebody ought to talk to the Warrens or the Newkirks or something like that and see yeah. if they talk to people, what the different dynamic is. Yeah. Well, not the Warrens because they're gone. But you I was going to say, they're, they're, I, we can have a seance. We could have a seance, I guess. Yeah, let's have a seance, yeah. <laughs> get the Ouija board out. Come on. You know, oh. I wish I could have talked to Rosemary about it. I just started to get to know her when she passed away. Oh, that is a shame. We hung out for about a week. Oh. And, and we had a wonderful time. She wanted to write a book on the Integratron, and she knew I knew the people that owned it. And that oh, uh, wow. a woman that's a, basically a, a historian of the Integratron and Giant Rock, my friend Barbara, and Barbara, and <laughs> Barbara Harris, and she, we drove up there. She was at the like the Alien Snowfest thing up there in Big Bear, and then she said, "I'm just here with Joe, her husband, and we're we're going to visit for like a week. And can you take me out to the to Integratron and we can do some research?" I said, "Yes, yes, Rosemary, yes." Because I didn't know why she would even pay attention to me. And suddenly she was just, but I realized it's because she wanted to go out and possibly write a book about the Integratron and Giant Rock. So the upshot of it is I got to spend like almost a solid week with her and just hanging out and going out to eat just ourselves. And I, I got a lot of insight about a lot of things from her. That's fantastic. Yeah, I've never heard somebody say a bad thing about her. No, I mean, there. I don't know if there was anything she ever, you know, she was... She was very focused and businesslike about what she did, but she was also very um, um, empathetic and 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 compassionate too. So, you know, I, I I'm glad uh, I'm glad I got to meet her. I'm sorry she's not around anymore because that she she you know and she didn't deal she didn't she had problems with the you know with being a woman investigator and writer. But she also just kind of said, you know what my answer is? I'm just going to do as good or better of a job than a man could do. And that's my answer. Um, and I really respected her for that, too. She's just kind of like, like I said, I just did a post recently. She was a force of nature, but she didn't hold it over you, you know? Yeah. 
So yeah, I, I, I've, so I've just really respected her and loved her for that. So um, like I said, I'm sorry I didn't get to know her better. Yeah. Just, I did not realize how amazing she was until she said, hey, you want to hang out? And I was like, huh, what, me? Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, very, very enriching uh, uh, part of my life, at least those few. She called me one time and or wrote me and said, I'm going to be at this thing. Are you, you going to go? And I said, I don't know, I guess so. And she goes, I'll give you one of my passes. I need to give out passes. And I was like, why me? But I went. <laughs> we had a wonderful time. David, David Weatherly was there, and, um, Nick Redfern, and the people that were presenting. Nori was there, George Nori. I guess they have him in there because he gets butts in seats. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to get those people in there. But yeah, it was it was a very fun thing. And then afterwards, she just said, "I want to work on this thing. Let's hang out." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah." yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is really cool. Yeah. She had this cool purse that I I, I put it up on Facebook. It was a purse with a um eye and a triangle. Yes. Rays coming out. It's such a cool purse. I was like, Rosemary, where'd you get that? She goes, Oh, Joe bought it for me. I don't know where he got it. Oh. <laughs> it the coolest purse I've ever seen. And of course, yeah, that's exactly cool. the one that she should have. <laughs> yeah. Very apropos. Yeah. Extremely. How long have we been talking? Uh, a really long time. Uh, three hours. <laughs> but it's kind of awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have to catch you some should probably it. eat at some point. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I've had a steak sitting out the entire I time, uh, sucking up all the salt so that I could get you know. people in your steaks and good food. <laughs> when I go reheat pizza. When the, when the when pandemic's visit, over, I will cook we will, so many we will cook for you. Kendra. <laughs> you promise. <laughs> she's a chef my mom's an ex-chef and i'm i was the sous chef and saute cook um at different times at a really good restaurant here in zoe's before the pandemic so we cook to show love yes i do too that's what i do with that's what i did with my wife that's what i do with my parents and that's what that's what cooking is in a lot of ways yes it is absolutely it's showing love sharing affection and sharing your culture and spending time with each other and like your personality and your personal taste and your even your family history yeah it's in your food yeah absolutely yeah yeah strong. What's the best food you ever had your, your mom's your mom's food. Yep. Peter tots. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I used to go to friends' crazy. houses and their, their parents and mother didn't cook and you'd be like, what is this? Yeah. How can you be serving this to your family? Oh my God. It's like yeah. bologna and, 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 you know, and cheese or something. It's like, yeah, I'm you not, guys I'm not, have this for dinner? Yeah. I'm not quite I, that bad. Yeah, <laughs> no, I I've eaten your food. Yeah. You actually do cook. I Yeah, I do. I just currently get into these. Let's just not be hungry tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard after, it after almost a year of pandemic like i find myself like at first i was get, i was getting burnt out on cooking because you do it all day at work and yeah. then you still have to cook when you get home yeah that would be crazy i couldn't do it um you get around it you prep before you go to work <laughs> ah. <laughs> then you come home and you just make a curry yeah 
Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I, I always, I would, I wouldn't do that. I'd go to work and I'd just leave something in a crock pot all day. Then that that and occasionally this, too. Yeah. I tried a crock pot, but it's not the same when you're not gone all day. So all yeah. you do is smell it, and it's like, all right. By the time it's time, it's dinner time. You're like, I don't, I don't even. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Really? I was sit there for six hours of like, oh boy, here it comes. Oh my God. Oh my God, here it comes. And then, you know, it's like I'll go test it a half hour before. Okay, that's good. Nice. <laughs> I will I will go mess with it. I'll be taking the lid off and stirring and like poking at it. Oh, like, I do my best to leave it. No, I'll if you're messing with it. with it, it gets it, it gets wrong. It gets mad at you. It does, which is why I I just I don't understand. I'm not good at slow cookers. They uh. they just say to me, well, bitch, why are you not just doing me on a stock pot on the stove if you're going to do this to me? No. Do, yeah, just leave me alone. Everything has to talk to each other. Otherwise, it's not going to taste better. Oh, yeah. And I talk, yes, yes. Yeah, and then it tastes better the next day, just like everything else. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of like cooking again now, but even kind of liking cooking again now because I'm not doing it all day. Yeah. Hoping to do every meal that you eat, every single one. It does. Oh, I'll be lazy in the morning and just have cereal or something. But yeah, I mean, every yeah. once in a while, it's like, okay, I really want this thing right now. So I'll yeah. take the time. I, I don't know. mind. I it's love that I have the time. That's awesome. It's coming up with what I'm going to eat. I just buy a bunch of stuff, throw it in the refrigerator, and then look at it and go, what can I do with these things? I, I kind of do that. I do that, too. I also I have plenty of cookbooks, though. So what I'm like, I have no idea. I have. Except from Barbara told me how to make the uh, uh, fry bread tacos. That I went to the store and bought the specific yes. things that I need. <laughs> And it was stunningly, deliciously wonderful. The fry bread tacos are awesome. Yeah. One of the things that I found you can do is you can put in Google a few ingredients that you have, and then it oh. will come up with all kinds of recipes. That's how I came up with the maple syrup and soy sauce. That was one that it was just like, I have these ingredients. And Google went, hey, here's 57 yeah. recipes. Yeah. Let's so, see. Yeah. I've got bacon and gummy bears. What do I do? You could do candied bacon. I, I, if you have anything else in there, there's, you could probably smoke the bacon further and like gently melt the gummy bears with candy. some oh. kind of light vinegar. Candy bacon is divine. Thing and candy yeah, candy. yeah. I, I invented an ice cream flavor. Krispy Kreme donut ice cream. <gasps> oh, yes, that would be phenomenal. I went to this place called Cool House and they had Fruit Loop ice cream and Captain Crunch ice cream. And it's like, how'd you make that? I said, well, you just soak the boat, soak the milk in the, in the, yeah. and yeah. then you just make ice cream out of it. And I thought, ooh. So I went over to Krispy <laughs> Kreme and got some of their, their donuts, like fresh out of the cooker, took them home. Like, I guess the, like the cook light is on or whatever. You run over and get, yeah. I took them home, chopped them into tiny little pieces, like an eighth of an inch. Soaked them in warm milk, strained it out, and then soaked it again just to get all the grease and the yeast and everything out of those out of those donuts and made ice cream with it. I took nice. it to work. It was like being my mouth was watering. It was like being Willy Wonka because <laughs> I would people I'd say, "What's this? It's ice cream. What flavor is it? Krispy Kreme donut?" And they'd look at me like, "What? What is wrong with you?" <laughs> just try it. And and they, yeah, they'd take a spoon and you'd have to wait for a minute before it would melt on the top of it. Yeah, and the mm -hmm. and all the all the oil and everything would come out, and 
everybody I gave it to it, they taste it, and you'd sit there for a second, they go, Oh my god, it's donuts. <laughs> That's amazing. That is amazing. That's why food is so fun. <laughs> so I'm celiac, but there's a pill I can take that'll help me digest gluten so I can have the occasional donut or Krispy Kreme. Krispy Kreme is my absolute weakness. And right before I was getting my gallbladder out, we went to Krispy Kreme and I got 12 donuts. And the lady, it was just me. And she kind of looked at me and I'm like, I'm having a farewell party for my gallbladder. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> I approve. <laughs> Yeah. I ate so, so many donuts. I was so sick. <laughs> it goes back to that salmon again. <laughs> yes, it does. There is a story about Coyote pooping himself into a tree because he overate at the feast. Yep. And <laughs> just you. Yep. <laughs> On that note, we should probably <laughs> say goodbye because it's just gonna <laughs> it's just gonna devolve. It's gonna you. keep going. Let me go. Let me go have my potatoes and the corn. Your and, delicious potatoes and corn and, and hatch chili sauce. And you're welcome. Well, that's all for this week's episode of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you. Until next time, keep your eyes on the skies and salt across your doorstep. And don't ever talk to the chupacabra. Yeah, he sucks. (laughs) 